this is like the 14th time we've had a, or maybe the 14th, maybe the 13th time we've had a Mother's Day Sunday. And we always do this a little differently. I'm not sure within the, all the time we've existed as a church, we've ever had like a full service um, about Mother's Day. And that is not uh, a slight. It's actually just an acknowledgement that while Mother's Day uh, is a nice time for many, for some people it, it elicits some challenging emotions. And uh, being a shepherd for years, I've been able to see those firsthand. And sometimes we as a church in our desire to elevate and to uh, create a, a, a good, good atmosphere, it can be challenging and we actually uh, bring up pains and hurts that people have about that because of experiences that we've had or that of close people we know. So I'm not doing a Mother's Day sermon today. This is not a slight, uh, if you are a mother, we, we're, we're just glad you're here with us, and if you're not, you're just as welcome. Uh, we hope that after this is done, you just have a wonderful day, regardless of what you're doing. We're also in the midst of two series, or we're between two series. We just wrapped up a series on justice, and next week we're going to begin a series on grace, and that's why they tabbed me. They're like, hey, Steve, we want you to talk about whatever you want to talk about. So I recently finished my taxes, which I would love just to talk about, tax code, but I held back off of that. And decided that, you know, because this is what's interesting too, like I said, we've been this uh, at this almost 14 years, and we've had different people come in and go during the time, and there's some things where I'm like, well, this is a staple thing that I preached at Echo, and then you look at the calendar and you're like, oh yeah, I talked about that in 2011, which was a long time ago, and that many people have come in and out. So for some of you, maybe you'll be like, this content sounds familiar. Well, if so, you've probably been here a while, and it is familiar, right? For some of you, you have never heard this, and this is the thing I want us to be able to do this morning, is to really grasp something is at the core of who Echo Church is, and that's one of our four core values, which is city. So of our core values, we included city, which is interesting because it's not to say then that city is somehow at a higher echelon than the suburbs or rural parts of the world, but to make an acknowledgement is that ministry within the city is distinct and challenging, and that's what we've faced as a congregation over 14 years. And when you do ministry in the city, you face certain things that might not be quote-unquote normal, especially within the broader American evangelical landscape. With my job, I do nonprofit financing, and I've, you know, this past week I was working with churches in Columbus, and I was working at churches in other parts of Ohio, and they were predominantly suburban and rural, and they were experiencing massive growth. But the gospel is challenging in cities because of the nature of how they exist. So I I always start off within these conversations, as we're going to talk a little about this this morning, I start off with a text from the book of John, the first chapter, because it's an introduction to the story of Jesus, and it's an introduction about Jesus that qualifies his ministry within, uh, within a parameter that many of us don't really get and understand. That is the wrong slide. Can you go to slide number one here, brother? Like, this is why they don't let me preach as much anymore. John chapter one, verse 18. The word, and this is talking about Jesus in a metaphor that Jesus was the word. He was the logos. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And what's very interesting within the Greek, there's a word that is used here that gives the, um, the, the picture, the visualization that Jesus actually tented 
among us, a temporary dwelling, which if you know in the Old Testament scriptures, this would have been like the tabernacle, which preceded the temple. So the tabernacle as a tent, a place of worship, was a movable place of worship. And it's like Jesus came from heaven to earth and he tented among us. And when you're tenting, and I'm not a, I used to be a Boy Scout. I was a big camping guy. I don't know how many of you are. Some of you are like, I will not be caught dead in a tent. Other of you are like, tenting is life. But the thing is, is that when you're setting up a tent, you are adjusting your abode to the terrain. You are you're, you're in the space, and that has an impact of who you are. Your environment will change how you move and act. And even though Jesus was God, and he held this to himself, by coming from heaven to earth, he acknowledged where he was. And that's something that city churches really need to do to understand who they are. And we are in this context, which is generally known as Walnut Hills, and I'm trying to see as my power stick on there? Yes. This is our first location, by the way. It's funny, we've been here long enough that some of you might not even remember it, but was a building just two blocks down the street. So if you go down McMillan, don't bend up Woodburn. We met in here on Sunday nights for the first six years or so. We negotiated to try to buy the building because the church was there, it was dying. They chose instead to sell it for a much bigger price to a person that now lives there in a mansion, like a church is a mansion. It was a great use of space. Um, and as much as I'm still bitter about this sometimes when I run by it, I look at this as a blessing because I see how our ministry has been impacted by not getting this building. I get a little bitter, but it's fine. But we happened upon this site, Aaron Burgess and I, as we were driving down a neighborhood by accident. We took a wrong turn, ended up in the parking lot in the middle of the week. And as we approached the door to knock, the chairman of the board showed up. And the first thing we did is we kind of backed into this neighborhood and didn't even know where we were. Because once you cross over this street over here, Victory Parkway to the east is East Walnut Hills. And then the community to the west is Walnut Hills. So we were actually meeting in East Walnut Hills, but really the commonality of the community is very interesting. East Walnut Hills has some of the most affluent people in the city where they live. And then previously, Walnut Hills, when we moved in, was one of the poorest neighborhoods in the city of Cincinnati. So I try to tell people, we're here, right? Like, we are here. This is where we're tenting. What does it mean for us to be in this neighborhood? What has happened in this neighborhood? Because if you came here to church even today, you probably drove past a myriad of abandoned houses, mansions, new construction. You're like, what has happened within this space? And I like to explain it within a triad because I'm prone to do that. Three points in a poem, right? And the first thing that Walnut Hills, this area, was known for is religion. That religion was always in the DNA of this community. And what's interesting, if you know this about Cincinnati history, it started in 1788, right after we won the Revolutionary War. They put a fort near downtown Cincinnati, and it started to grow. And the first person to be brave enough to say, I'm going to live outside of that fort area, was a man named James Kemper. And James Kemper just happened to be a Presbyterian minister. And he and his sons basically laid the groundwork for what Walnut Hills became to be. And this was the first house that he built. And what's interesting is that it existed on uh, Kemper Lane, uh, believe it or not, which is right near where the library is, uh, south of McMillan over here. And when they decided to develop it more, they took this down piece by piece. They moved it to the zoo for a while. 
And then when the zoo was like, look, this doesn't fit into our botanical array, they moved this out to Sharon Woods. So you can actually go and see the very first house that existed outside of the Cincinnati. And that was Walnut Hills. And the reason he went here is he was preaching at a church way out in the sticks. And he was preaching at a church downtown. So he wanted some place that gave him a head start on his Sunday preaching duties. And because of that location, and because he owned all the land up here, he actually made a deal with the Presbytery as a Presbyterian minister, and they founded one of the biggest, first influential seminaries uh, this side of the Alleghenies, and that was a place called Lane Seminary. And when they built Lane Seminary, and by the way, if you know where the Cadillac dealership is up on Gilbert Avenue, this building once existed there. And they coaxed from the East Coast, from Boston, a guy named Lyman Beecher, who at the time was the most famous minister in the entire United States. And he moved from Boston to Cincinnati because this is how religion steeps in all this, is that the belief was if we can get Protestantism to take root in the West, we can kill Catholicism before it gets out here. Like it was all an anti-Catholic movement. So what's funny is that Beecher starts the seminary. He gets some money. It's working out well. When he's away one point, the issue of slavery arrives. We'll touch back to this. It becomes more prominent. And the first debates ever in the United States on the issue of slavery takes place about five blocks from here in Walnut Hills. And it actually wrecks the seminary when Beecher is like, look, we're about religion, not about the racial issues that are happening at this time. But what happens is the explosion of religion here in Walnut Hills. Like when we moved in here 14 years ago, I drove block by block to find every church. Because you, you couldn't find it. This was, even the internet's existed, but it was not nearly as robust. And I drove every street in Walnut Hills and East Walnut Hills. There were 90 different churches within this area. And over the years, what's interesting is that even more religious progressive places moved into uh, there was a lot of spiritualist movements. There was a whole community over on Park Lane who they really believed like if you went to their church and you were a good member long enough, you would actually become Jesus. Like there was a lot of good cults in our area, guys. Like this influenced everything because this emphasis on religion is part of the DNA. I want to talk about another issue that is probably one of the preeminent issues that has affected this area, and this is riches or the issue of wealth. You know, here's me with my R's. I'm trying to stick with it, but... The issue of wealth really had an impact here. Because you have to understand is that as a suburb, you know, we think about the suburbs being far out. Walnut Hills was originally in a suburb. And the thing about the topography of Cincinnati is that we have so many good vistas, right? So many good views. You can see the downtown area. But if you think a few hundred years ago, getting up those hills were difficult, right? There were not paved roads. The roads were rudimentary. And to get people from the basin up the hills were difficult. So only the wealthy lived here. And when they lived here, they were wealthy enough to put the roads up here so that they could get out of the lower bowl to the hills up here. So this was a community, Walnut Hills, East Walnut Hills, that was started in pure affluence. It was a wealthy, and that's why, uh, you know, if you have not done it, if you just come to church here and get out of the car, you know, someday before or after church, get here early or late, and just drive down some of the streets, just even down here on McMillan, some of the big homes right here. Go up to Madison Road and see some of the massive mansions that are just hiding. Uh, the Tom Cruise movie Rain Man that was filmed in 1988, there's a private drive up on Madison, so it was, part of it was his dad's mansion was just right up here. This is where they did it. This was just a place where the wealthy and the affluent lived. And what's interesting is that was directly connected to public transportation, actually. They needed a way to get from the bottom of the top of the hill. So the first thing that they did was they built tracks, and they didn't have locomotives, they had horses pulling the tracks. 
uh, the, the carts up the tracks. And this actually is a picture, you know, it's, you can't even see it back here, but it even says Walnut Hills on it. And when they got to the bottom of Gilbert Avenue, I don't know if you can see my map, it's probably not helpful, but it goes right up Eden Park, they would add extra horses because it took more horses to pull it up the hill. And what that did was create a place and a system and a network by which the wealthy could get back to their work jobs in the basin and get home at night. So the public transportation in those early days, you know, because sometimes we think, oh, those buses, you know, like we think of them as somehow inferior because it's a thing. Public transportation at first benefited the wealthy because it got them from A to B because they couldn't afford to have four horses pulling them up the hill all the time. Well, then as things changed and technology moved, there was an intricate set of cable cars, you know, even later in the time with uh, more mechanized uh, um, track transportation. And the box is the Walnut Hills, East Walnut Hills area. And if you can see the street grid right here, you might not be able to see the coloration, but the city of Cincinnati was full of different transportation vehicles which would move people from here to there. And I go in on the box because I want you to hone in on where we are right now in Walnut Hills. And it, it, this is Walnut Hills, so you can see my Eden Park right here. The yellow lines are where the cable cars would go, Okay. And they intersected here in the middle. This is at Macmillan and Gilbert up here, which is known as Peebles Corner, not People's Corner, as if like lots of people, there was a grocer there named Joseph Peebles, and he would bribe the people who were on the cable car to announce that as Peebles Corner. He would give them cigars every week, and it became known as Peebles Corner uh, even after his grocery died. But they would come out from the bottom of Cincinnati, they'd get to the top of the hill, and then the tracks veered to the right. And it did a nice little loop through Walnut Hills. I put the two stars here to show two things that happened in that time. The farthest star to the east is the Walnut Hills Christian Church where we started at Echo. It turned right by the church. And this star right here is where you and I are sitting right now. One of the reasons that we had that beautiful building down there that we rented, and this one right here, which was built in 1873, one of the reasons that streetcars went right past here is the wealthiest people in Cincinnati sat in the exact same pews that you did. And they built massive churches, and it was right on public transportation, and that helped everything grow. Why did those streetcar tracks go right there? Because the people in power said, you're going to put it right so I can get off right at church? And then after church, I can catch that and go right back down to the bottom of the valley. So it was all about wealth. And it continued like this. And then at the end of World War II, there was a shift where people said, what is going to happen now? Because our whole country mobilized for war, and now all these soldiers are coming back. What are they going to do? So in foresight, our people, leaders of the city, developed the 1948 Master Plan, which was one of the first comprehensive master plans of any city in the United States. Sounds visionary, right? Like you're like, I, I like that Cincinnati was a visionary city. But the problem was, the way that they imagined the future working out is what determined the plan that they created, and it really didn't go the way that they planned out. I don't know if you can see on this, this is orange color. I don't know if you can see this little picture I have to the right. This picture is a highway system, and it's not going, you know, it looks like it's going north to south, but really goes east to west. And really, it is a transportation system that exists in our city, downtown, right about 3rd Street. So if the river's to the right, maybe you recognize this as what's called Fort Washington Way. Does it make sense to you? Fort Washington Way is a weird connector between Interstate 71 and 75 that allows you to get to between it. 
That's what you go down in that deep dip where the stadiums are on your right, the downtown's on your left, right? So they were like, look, we're going to put in these highway systems and they're going to make a difference. But that's not where they started or stopped. Because you see my little circles right here? It's tough to see what those are, maybe. Anybody got a guess? Can you see what they are? They are sea turtles. They are actually helicopters. So now, think about this. Some of us who are, some of us who are like older, you remember that every radio program had their own helicopter person who would tell you how traffic, like that was what we did before cameras existed. Like you would listen to the radio just so you can hear the helicopter traffic reporter who could look down and fly over the city and see where traffic was backing up. So what's funny is that you would think, oh, they, we just have really good traffic coverage. That's not what the city founders thought. What the city founders thought is within a generation, the best people in town and most people will own their own helicopter and they will use that for transportation. 1948, friends. To prove this, you can find this picture of what was imagined as the riverfront. They planned to move the Red Stadium down here. They had this. And then there's this box next to the Red Stadium. Like, do you see it? Like this rectangular box. And when you first look, you're like, oh, that's the Colosseum, right? It's just a rectangular Colosseum. No, if you could see really small here, the word here says heliport. So in 1948, Cincinnati City Fathers thought that people would get to the Reds game by helicopter. Like, can you imagine the absolute utter chaos? Like, how many accidents happen on the road? Like, you guys are afraid of drones. Our best and brightest city fathers were like, helicopters everywhere. <laughs> like, everybody could own their own helicopter. You know who's going to own the helicopter? The wealthy, the rich. Now, this is what's interesting. And this is the aspect of the plan that went awry. So what they thought was, hey, everybody's always going to work in Cincinnati. So if they want to live out in the suburbs, that fine. that's fine. Let them be in the suburbs, take their helicopter in, they'll work in the city, and we'll get their taxes. They never imagined that maybe people would set up their businesses outside the city where they didn't have to pay as much taxes, and that would hurt the ecosystem of the city of Cincinnati. And that's exactly what happened. Part of this brainchild, too, by the way, was the creation of this monstrosity, Interstate 275, and I say that tongue-in-cheek, but not really, because you need to understand, has anybody ever done it? Like, I'm from Cincinnati. Has anybody ever, ever done, like, the 275 loop? You're like, I'm doing it today. Yes, 88 miles in a circle. It's the longest loop around a beltway, except for a section of the Autobahn that is not as complete as Interstate 275. So not only did they build a belt loop to help traffic, they made it so large that it really didn't help us ultimately. And that's why if you look at the issues of the Brent Spence Bridge downtown, they're like, oh, we have to rebuild this bridge. You know why? Because nobody's going to take all that extra time to go all the way around the circle. I love this. This is, why you gotta, this is where I have to pause. You're like, Steve, what does your helicopter story and your hatred of 275 have to do anything with Jesus? Can I tell you why? The first thing that it did in creating this space, it took the middle class, stable base, taxpaying base, out of the city. And actually, not only did it take them out of the city, they were told to move out of the city. Do you know why? Because of this little section right about where the star is, where that's Interstate 75. So everybody's driving up 75, you know, coming out of downtown there. You're always like, oh, it's so dense. You don't realize is that the interstates where you're on used to be housing for 100,000 people. And you know who it was? It was some of the poorest people in the city of Cincinnati. So when they're like, we need to put in an interstate, that's okay. We'll put it through their poor neighborhood. 
And they won't argue. And what's interesting, if you go on the Googles, put in Kenyan Bar, this was the community that they have pictures like this. It wasn't like it was just all run down. There were communities and houses. And this guy here, they always took a thing just to remember because they took pictures because they're like, this will never exist again. We're going to tear it down and there will be asphalt over this. And what's interesting is that in all these pictures, the kids were like, can we be in the picture? And they were like, sure. And the kids had no idea that the next generation of their life would be impacted by this occurrence. So all this big plan, even though you're like, it's visionary, it was actually created at the cost of those who were the least among us. And this is why I bring up the last issue, which is the most difficult one as we traverse. And by the way, this is the thing as we're coming out of this, is that now we're in this point of gentrification, and we're still seeing how this issue is impacting the community. I'll I'll, I'll travel back to this. I think I had this last aspect, is the aspect of race. And it's unavoidable. And what was very interesting about Walnut Hills, this is why I'm proud that we live in this community, is that when that seminary fell because of the race issue, what was interesting, it was the only real estate in the city of Cincinnati that did not have a cultural outlier where African-Americans couldn't own it. So the people who had that, who were very much into um, you know, anti-slavery causes, parceled up their lands and they would buy it and then sell it directly themselves to African-Americans. So the most successful African-American community in the city of Cincinnati actually existed up near where the Cadillac dealership is today. But when they put in the interstates, even though there was a stable community of whites and blacks who lived together, and there were not, we don't have racial issues in Walnut Hills until after the Second World War, when they tore up all the houses, they told everybody who was there, move out because we're going to put in new um, impoverished African Americans, and that pushed a lot of people out. Mostly on that side of Victory Parkway, because over here, there's still these mansions and these big buildings. So the way that they solved that, because they were like, okay, you know, we don't want to live next to those people. If you'll notice around here, the way that they regulated that was through traffic patterns and one-way streets. So the idea that this is a one-way street here, and then you go up, have you ever tried to drive from here to Madison Avenue? Like, it's sometimes the most confusing thing. And actually, there's a neat little road. If you go up to Madison Avenue and where they just put in at the old church place, there's a bunch of condos right now, there's a series of one-way streets that are set up there specifically to keep people out of their neighborhoods. And actually, if you go up to the park here in Eden Park, you'll be like, why can't I turn left between 2 o'clock and 10 o'clock on Sundays? That's to keep the poor people out of the neighborhoods because that's when they use the park. I say, and this is the intersection of that, is that predominantly then in this neighborhood, when displaced African Americans that were impoverished moved to this neighborhood, that's where the issue of race became more combative. And that's actually the neighborhood into which we started this church. And the first thing that we did was try to ingrain ourselves within the city. And it was a good discipline because we were welcomed as a church trying to come in and do something, but there was always an uneasiness about it because of the underlying of these three issues. These three issues were always the the difficult one to maneuver. I could go on for hours, like seriously, hours. My wife does not like this, and it is Mother's Day for her, so I'll lay off of that. I think these are the two questions we have to ask. The first one is for us corporately. How does Echo make a difference in this community? So how does a church, in the midst of all that, make a dent, make a difference? 
Can I do one more geek thing and illustrate this? Maybe you've been down at the corner of Gilbert Avenue and Taft, and you've seen what looks like a weird monument that just looks like a church that blowed up and they kept the steeple there. Um, that was intentional because they negotiated with uh, the funeral home that bought it. They were like, look, can we just leave the steeple up if we raise money to take care of it? And they said yes. And this eventually was supposed to be part of a, a historical race tour that started at the Underground Railroad Museum downtown, but it really never existed. So what's funny is that I've been inside the little area below. It's like a church lobby, but that's it. Like it's all walled up. It's like you walk into a lobby and there's nothing else there. But this is what the church looked like when it was built. And actually, I was like, okay, what, what did that, how did that church get there anyways? So actually, I went to the library years ago, and I traced it out. Because the church was started by some people from professors from Lane Seminary, the seminary that existed over there, as First Presbyterian Church. Okay? But then, at the same time, there was a couple different churches, 7th, Presbyterian, or 7th Street Presbyterian Church downtown. Well, when their neighborhood changed downtown, they moved up and joined with the Avondale Presbyterian Church after a few incarnations. And then those churches that merged into that joined together to join, ultimately, within a couple generations, the Walnut Hills United Presbyterian Church. So it's like, really, eight different churches finally ended up in that building right down the street in our neighborhood. Historical archives are great, y'all. Like, that's the one thing that, thank goodness, like, history geeks have something, because I was able to go and check out in the library the... Uh, master plan, like the strategic plan from the Walnut Hills United Presbyterian Church in the 1950s. So I'm reading through this thing. Like they do a whole study. A lot of the stuff I told you about, they're like, hey, our community's changing. This is happening. The economics are changing. The racial makeup's changing. We're a wealthy white, white church with people moving out to the burbs. This is all changing. And they're like, so what's next? And i got to read this to you. So this is from 1958 from a church in Walnut Hills. They wrote the density of Presbyterian churches in Walnut Hills neighborhood. At the time, there were six within a mile. So six different churches all right there, right? Uh, and in all of Cincinnati is to be reckoned with. The church cannot be moved into an area where its people now live and not also move into another Presbyterian parish. Do you see what that means? They were like, hey, you know, all of our people are moving out. Let's move. And they're like, oh, we can't move there. There's a Presbyterian church there. You know, we can't go out to that burb because there's another Presbyterian church. So they're like, we cannot move out of this neighborhood. Then it writes, in spite of discouraging circumstances, this committee notes progress, slow but sure, to be present the character of the church. It's believed that the city of Cincinnati is too fluid and too freighted with potential urban renewal projects to decide today what will be the character of Walnut Hills tomorrow. Which is interesting because in the 1950s, Walnut Hills has three different iterations even to where we are today. So consequently, it is to believe that any radical changes by our church now would be poorly timed. So the conclusion of the entire 80-page report was this sentence. We will work hard for the building of the church to the extension of the gospel. Their final sign of response to the changing neighborhood around them, we will watch and pray. Now look, I'm going to talk about prayer in a second. I'm a very pro-prayer person. But do you see when they say, we will watch? You know what that means? We will do nothing. We will sit on our hands. And this community will change, but we're going to be faithful. We're going to be here. And fidelity, friends, involves not just a posture, right? And again, prayer has to undergird this, but there has to be something. They had the chance to do something, and now 
It's just a steeple that's left. There's no remnant of that church. It's gone. So the challenge for us as a church is to figure out what do we do to make sure that we aren't the first Presbyterian church of Walnut Hills. And just in short, guys, we got to do more than watch and pray. So let me bring this to you, because as much as you're like, okay, what's Echo doing? We understand is that we are a, a, a conglomeration of believers. What are we doing? What do you need, you need to do? What role do you play into ensuring that we just aren't a metaphorical spire that exists with no church around it, okay? So four things for you. First, presence. So here's one of the things I've talked about for years, and this is the thing. My wife and I, we have lived in Walnut Hills for 14 years. Our house is right down the street. We walk to church. Like, it's the idealized life for me, okay? It's not for you, okay? Maybe you are at the point where you're like, look, we, there is no way that we are going to be in this neighborhood. And it's getting even more challenging because I talk to friends, and now it's like there, it is, there are parts of our neighborhood that people are being priced out of, not even the poor people, but even affluent people are like, man, it's hard to find a house there right now. We, you might not have the opportunity to do that, but that doesn't mean then that you can't just be present in the neighborhood. And there are places and opportunities and events for you to be here. Again, this is not to say that our neighborhood community is superior or anything, but this is where we are as a congregation of believers. So the one thing is be present. I will just say this. This will be my most prophetic, offensive statement of the morning. But if the only time that you are in Walnut Hills is for an hour and a half on a Sunday morning, then I think you just need to find ways to increase that. And maybe it's even just with a a Bible study, right? Maybe it's just a way so that you are in this community so that it impacts what you do more than just on a Sunday morning. Does that make sense? And again, if I've offended you, well, we have other elders and you can talk to Seth and tattle on me. That's great, okay? But just presence is important. Purchasing, which I struggle with this, but I'm going to hold on to it, and this is why. Because then you're like, oh, okay, so all forms of participation end up in capitalism. That's a great way to talk about things, right? Like, I feel like George Bush at the Gulf, you know, like after 9-11, he's just like, keep buying stuff, you know? Like, that'll save us all, the economy. I'm not saying that you need to do this, but this is one of the things, too, that I've discovered, is that the problem in being in a small neighborhood community is that you know you can get a better price outside of this community, right? Like I know when I'm fixing something in my house that if I just take the extra 15 minutes to go to Lowe's in northern Kentucky, I can save myself 20 bucks when I go down to uh, the hardware store right at the end of the street. But one of the things that we've committed to being part of this community is like, look, we're going to try where we can to put dollars in this community. So I'm not saying, so you're like, so now do I, if I don't live here, do I have to come and buy from the hardware store? No. But one of the things that we do also constantly is, you know what, if, if there is something in this community that can provide you services, look at it as an option, an opportunity. Even if it's minimalistically that I'm going to have lunch at the fireside or something. Because then again, there's cheaper pizza in the city of Cincinnati, right? But what, you know, and by the way, I'm a West Side dude originally. So I'm, I'm cheap as all get out, right? Like I... You know, I'm like, look, I want Totino's pizza. I'm going to throw that sucker in the oven, and it's just as good. But sometimes I'll bite the bullet and spend a little more because what I want the community to know is that I'm in this community, I'm invested in this community. Does that make sense? 
So that's a way that we can do it. I hope that makes sense. I'm not just saying buy, you know, like, no, I can only buy local. But friends, if we make an effort, if we invest in the community, then that shows something. I'll come back to that aspect later. Prayer is so important. And I think we can all do this, right? Is I think it would be part of your discipline in your regular prayers to pray for this community. And I think it needs it more so than ever because that, that, that religion, riches, race, triad is going to make it even more combative in the years to come. The biggest lament that I had when we moved in, I got on the community council of of Walnut Hills and we wanted to be there because I was like, look, I can bring echo into this. And we did lots of stuff. We hosted the community council website for seven years for free, right? And then we helped them. So they didn't even have a website. We created the website. Um, We were the major sponsor of what became the Street Food Festival that doesn't exist for like six years. Like we were the biggest sponsor that they had and we were not inflatables for them. We were deeply involved in the community. But when some of the issues came out of new development and gentrification, I'd sit in in the meetings and it was anger and it was hatred between sides. And I was like, I don't think there's any way for Echo to be good presence in the midst of this. Like, people are going to knock it out. We're going to have to pull back. Um, but the one thing we've kept doing through that is continuing to pray for what God has done here. I think we can do that because there's a lot of issues that come through. And then this last aspect, participation, I think is key. When we had to pull back, it was very difficult for me because then you start to say, what are we doing as a church? but it became incredibly political in this neighborhood. But what's funny is that there's been a shift now and there's things that are new, that are happening. And I love that Echo is being in the center of that. For years, we tried to get involved in Frederick Douglass Elementary School and the administration there were very leery of a church being involved uh, and they were very leery of having any outsiders involved at all. So that was another thing. We were involved here and there. We punted on it. We got out of it. And then the transition as Kendra started doing outreach work for us and Seth actually saw that as part of his vision for what happens to Echo Church, they've started to get involved not just within uh, the Faith Alliance here in Walnut Hills, that is always difficult, like bring a, bring a ton of churches together, there's always some loco craziness that happens around. I'm proud of our team because they navigated that beautifully. And then another aspect of this, though, is that then in getting involved in Douglas now, and I know some of you, I was, we were out and away, some of you got to see the Princess Ballet performance, you were there to support that, that there are dozens of young uh, ladies in this community, many of whom live in poverty, that are now learning ballet because of people here at Echo who are giving their time and uh, God bless Kendra and Shante in their aspect of it because there's chaos when you're working with the kids and then with the adults and parents. Like it's just, it's, it's remarkable, but this is the beautiful thing that I love as a resident here is that when I'm out someplace and I hear one of my neighbors talking great about something that's happened in Walnut Hills and they have no idea that the church I go to is what has fueled that, it just puts a big old grin on my face. Because what I realize is what we are doing in this community is making a difference. If you are so challenged to say, maybe this is the next step that God is calling me to do to be in this neighborhood, is get participated, you got to go talk to, to Seth. you got to talk to Seth because, trust me, we can find places 
for you to be able to sow seed into this community and make a difference. I guess it's the thing I'm most excited about. So I say all this just to get this to the idea is that this neighborhood was something, it's changing, and as much as I want to write an 80-page report about what we need to do in the future, friends, I have, uh, again, and I have academic work within urban studies, I have no flipping idea what the next 15 of this, years of this neighborhood will show. I don't know what it's going to look like. And then some of you are like, I might not be even in this city in 15 years. That's fine. You still need to find a way to invest. I'm going to do the uncouth thing to look at my clock. I'm a little past, but just stick with me. I'm going to wrap. I'm landing this plane, right? Seth, you be ready to come get the handoff. I'm going to land this plane, but I got to come back biblical because you're like, that was a horrible non-biblical sermon. I'm telling you is that it's drenched in the incarnation of what we need to do. And this aspect is one of my favorite stories. God's people in the Old Testament had a direct line to the Almighty and they could never get it right. God's people had blessings from the Lord God. They were his people of all the different nations, and they were still like, yeah, but we're going to sin anyway, and we're going to worship idols, and we're going to ignore you. And God's like, guys, just come around. Like, I'm your, I'm your guy. And they're like, no, we love the sin in better. So finally, God's like, all right, guys, I've got to pause. You're going to be conquered. And I'm going to allow a foreign army to come in and collect you and to take you someplace else. And that's in 586 BC, the Babylonian captivity. Babylon invades. They take the best and the brightest of God's people and they remove them hundreds of miles away, north and east across a desert, and they live there. So what's interesting is that they were conquered and they were being punished. But as God is trying to tell them how they needed to treat their time away from home, he provides in the prophet Jeremiah some counsel, some advice on how they should live. And in Jeremiah, it says chapter 118. That's not true. It's in Jeremiah chapter 29, uh, and it's like verse 6 and following. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. He's telling them, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So here's the takeaway, y'all, is that, man, if I know when I, I travel a lot for work, you know, when I'm in a hotel, even for three nights, I don't even make the bed, right? Because I am not investing anything in that room because it's a rental and I will be gone, Right? Some of you are like, look, I'm living in this apartment for 18 months. I'm not hanging pictures. I'm not taking things out of boxes. I'm just going to sit here and exist. I'll be done. Right? What's interesting is that even in this moment where God took his people and he's like, you will not be in your own homeland, what he's telling them to do is invest in it. Don't just live there and sulk. Invest in it. Put some roots down. And for us, that's a tough message, right? You're like, if I know I'm not going to be here, I don't want to put roots down because that makes it difficult to rip out of the soil. And God tells you, do it anyway. Invest in it. Plant some roots. See what he does through you.
And the reason that I say that because of all that we've talked about is like Walnut Hills, East Walnut Hills, these areas right around here. You might be like, look, Cincinnati is just a layover for me. You know, I was here for school. This job is wrapping up. I'm going to be gone. I just need to, you know, I don't want to get too attached. And God is telling you, get attached. Get attached. And you know what? One of two things are going to happen with that. Number one, you're going to start sending some roots and you're going to be like, this is a nice place for a tree, right? Then you end up like Susan, who was like, I'm here for a little while. And then here we're a decade later and Susan's like, still in Cincinnati. It's the worst. So if you want God to smack you in the face with a two by four, start sending down some roots. Let me tell you the second thing though. You start to set down roots and you still have to leave. Then like I said, when you're pulling it out, it is going to be like ripping an appendage off of yourself, right? And we don't like to put us in that situation, ourselves in that situation, true? Why would I invite future pain for myself by investing in some place? Friends, that's the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus is telling you to do, is to invest in something, even if you don't think this is it, because that's what Christ followers do. So as we think about all this, Plant some roots. Seek the prosperity of Walnut Hills, of East Walnut Hills, because through that, you will be blessed. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you for uh, change. I thank you for random selected histories. (laughs) That when we look into it, God, we can see that not everything is pristine as we thought it once was, nor maybe as it could be in the future when we pull back the curtain and we see the wizard at work, it can be disturbing. But God, we know that in all this stuff, you, you, you are in control. And you have called us to be missionaries where we are planted. And for those who are here this morning that have been here their whole life and maybe you know, they will be buried here, we just ask that um, you continue to help them be faithful in ministry. There are people here today who this is just a layover in life, God. We just ask your spirit to convict, to help us to see that rooting ourselves is what you are calling us to do. Wherever you might lead us, Father, help us be faithful to your gospel. And Father, in all this, we lift up Echo Church and we lift up our staff and we lift up the servants who are all trying to invest in this place to see your truth reign. And it will reign, God. Thank you for the pleasure of participating in this ministry. We give you praise in the name of Jesus. Amen.